Good morning, church. If you would uh, take your Bibles out and open up to 2 Peter chapter 1. We'll begin in verse 1 and we'll go through about verse 15 today. I uh, thought that we might all need a little break from Paul because uh, in Sunday school we've been in the book of Colossians and in course worship we've been in the book of Romans. So today we're going to change it up a little bit. We're going to get Peter and give it, see what he has to say. Um, so 2 Peter chapter 1 beginning in verse 1. And I'll read through verse 15 and then we'll pray. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it is right I think it right as long as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Let's pray. Father God, we are so grateful for the opening of your word and to be able to study it to be able to discern it, and to be able to apply it to our lives, Lord. God, I pray that you'll use me today to convey your truth correctly, to convey it boldly, Lord, and that you'll open all of our hearts and minds to receive it, to understand it, and to apply it to our lives so that we may not sin against you and that you will be glorified and honored in all that we do, God. Lord, we love you and we praise you. And it's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. Amen. So, 
as you all know, this past week we uh, went through the election process. We Americans love to make choices and choose. We get to choose our leaders through the election. Me and my wife get to choose dinner ever so often, and we have trouble doing that, choosing. But in this passage that we're going to look at, we're going to confirm the calling of God to salvation for us and his election of salvation for us. And how do we as believers confirm that call and confirm that election? As you know, in our election process, it's been under scrutiny for the last few years. Um, And I actually had the privilege of sitting in on our local election and watching all the results come in and how the election officials handle those results. And because I do get to work at the courthouse and work with these election officials, I get to see all the stuff behind the scenes that goes on in the election about how they have to test these machines and make sure they have all the proper ballots and all the ballots are correct. And these electronic machines that they use, they have so many different kind of codes that they have to punch in to make sure there's just virtually no way to tamper with this election process. And Tuesday night when I'm sitting in the courthouse, I get to see every box in Jackson County, which in Jackson County, I think there's 32 boxes, 32 places that conducts an election. And I get to see all those come in, and I see that the election official, who's the probate judge, and another election official that they've hired, sits there, tabulate, gets those, punches them in their computer, tabulates the results, sees the results, and they confirm that election. Well, today, we're going to see how we confirm our election in God, and God's election that he has for us. So, 2 Peter, verse 1 He starts this letter, as most New Testament writers start their letter, we see that Peter identifies himself as a servant and apostle to Jesus Christ. The word servant, of course, here in the Greek is doulos, which literally means slave. Peter identifies himself as a slave to God and a slave to Christ, just as Paul identifies himself as a slave to God and a slave to Christ, James identifies himself as a slave to God and a slave to Christ. Jude identifies himself as a slave. All these New Testament writers have this dynamic in their relationship with God to where they acknowledge it as being owned by God. Just as a slave, even though we think that's a derogatory term in this day and time, back then when these writers are writing This scripture, nearly one-third of the world's population is under some form of slavery. So it's commonplace. They understand, these people understand when Peter and Paul and all the writers of the New Testament identify themselves as slaves, they understand that relationship. They understand that Paul, Peter, and all these writers are not their own. They're owned by somebody. And of course, Peter identifies himself as a slave to whom? Jesus Christ. But also in his greeting, he says apostle, which means messenger. So Peter not only has a humble identification in, hey, I'm a slave to Christ, but I'm also a messenger of Christ. And of course, 
Peter should be a messenger of Christ, right? Because he has an eyewitness account of Christ's life on earth. He saw all of it, or at least three years of it, when Christ began his ministry on earth, walks through all the miracles that he does, walks through all the trials that he did, and walks through all the situations and encounters that he had with other people. And then he also saw Christ hang on the cross. He also saw Christ risen from the dead. So Peter has a very inept understand, or apt understanding of who Christ is. And he identifies himself as not only his messenger, but he's also owned by him. Again, that is a foreign construct to us in this day and time because we don't like the idea of being owned by anybody. But yet, Paul, Peter, the writers of the New Testament, all identify themselves as slaves. We, in our American culture, don't like that. We prefer to identify ourselves as maybe partners with God or God's children, which we indeed are God's children if we have been born again through Christ. But this is a concept and a construct of a relationship that we often neglect. We are owned by God. He is our master. We are to seek His will and do His will. So let's move on. Peter identifies himself as a slave and a messenger. And then here's his letter, who he's addressing. He says, To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So he's writing to whom? Believers, right? And in particular, it's the believers that he writes in his first letter. Those who have been exiled. Jews, mostly, who have been exiled for whatever reason, partly because of possibly their converted Jews. Possibly back when the Babylonians took over the Jews in the B.C.s. Whatever the case, he was mentioning these people. He's writing to the same people, but they are believers. And notice how he words this. He says, those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Obtained. That word means given something. You received it. Notice the word is not attained. Attained is something you earn, something you achieve. But this is obtained means you grabbed on to something that was given to you. So we know that our faith in Christ and our salvation in Christ is not something that we earn. It is not something we achieve. It is not something that God owes us. It is something that God gives us in spite of us. And so he says, obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. You've received a faith. And we'll we'll say that the definition of faith is the complete belief and trust in Christ. So they have been given this faith. And it's an equal standing with ours. That's amazing within itself. This is the only place in the Bible you'll see this kind of wording, equal standing with with ours. Meaning that this faith that you've received, if it is in Christ and in Christ alone, it's the same that Peter has. It's the same that Paul has. It's the same that all these believers in the New Testament who are true believers, it's the same that they have. There's no distinction. Just because you may be Jew 
or Greek, just because you may be black or white or woman or man or child, if you have received this faith, you're on same standing as Peter, as Paul, as all the saints in the New Testament. Why? How does that work? Because in our minds, we automatically want to go to distinctions. We want to say, well, Peter's absolutely more deserving of this faith than I am. And they, but such and such down the street may be less deserving than I am. No. This obliterates the idea that there's different standings in our salvation. This obliterates the idea that God is a respecter of personhood. God is no respecter of man. What that means is he doesn't make distinctions among men based on what they are or what kind of status they have. The faith that Peter has is the same that these believers have. It's the same that we have. And we stand equally with God on that. Not equals to God, but equally in front of God. And he says... Standing with ours. And this is how the equality comes to pass. Not by man's righteousness. Not by what you and I accomplish or you and I do. Any kind of good that we may do. But it says, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is how it is equal. Because it is not based on us. It can't be. Because as we know in Scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament, we are reminded that what? Man's righteousness is like filthy rags to God. We cannot earn salvation. We cannot earn good standing with God. It's not possible because we are comprised of sin. No matter what we try to do, no matter how good we may think we are, our righteousness does not meet God's standard. But whose righteousness does? Christ, right? Christ is our moral pattern. He is our moral standard. And thus, because of His righteousness, you and I, who are believers, can say we have equal standing in the faith with Peter and Paul and all the New Testament saints. If that doesn't boggle your mind, I don't know what can, because thinking that I have something of equalness with Paul and Peter and all the saints of the New Testament is amazing. And it also tells me that I'm so undeserving of such standing. But Paul identifies these people as having equal standing in their faith. And then he says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of, our Jesus, of Jesus Christ our Lord. This is more or less almost the standard greeting in most of the letters of the New Testament. But the wording is so great. And we have to really dive in to how it's worded, these phrases that Peter uses. And if you've ever sat in my Sunday school teaching, you'll know I go phrase by phrase, sometimes word by word. Because we miss a lot of things when we don't do so. We just try to understand just the basic concepts of the text. But you see, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord.
It's not just grace and peace in general. Grace, as we know, is defined as the undeserved love of God or the undeserved favor of God. And of course, we can only find peace in God through whom? Christ. But he uses this word, he says, be multiplied to you. In this prepositional phrase, he says, in the knowledge of God, of Jesus our Lord. In Jesus our Lord. The word knowledge that Peter writes here is a word that we're going to see repeated in this passage. Matter of fact, Peter uses knowledge in this passage five times. But there's two kinds of knowledge. There's, in the Greek, it's epinosis, which means an intimate, personal, intense knowledge. And then there's gnosis, which is a general understanding or a general wisdom, not necessarily pertaining to intensity or intimacy or anything of that nature. But in this case, in this verse, Peter uses epinosis, which is an intense personal knowledge of God and of Christ our Lord. That's how Peter wants us to receive our grace and peace. It's through knowing Christ. Not an informational or an educational knowledge of who Christ is, but a belief and trust and knowing who Christ is. There's a difference. And so he, dev- he now goes into his instruction for these believers. We've got the greeting, and now here's the instruction, as we see in verse 3. It says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Get this. Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. The word granted written in the Greek is dorio. I believe that's how you pronounce it. It is to bestow or to present. Again, it is God's power in Christ. He has granted to us, notice this, and this is great, all things that pertain to life and godliness. And then who's it through? What's it through? Through the knowledge, and again, here's that same Greek form of this word, epinosis of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. That tells us, that one verse tells us that everything we need in life to be good, to practice godliness, and to live and to be sustained comes through what and whom? Christ and knowing Him. And it's given to us. It's by God's power, His divine power. So we have that. We have all things in Christ. We don't have to add anything to the equation. We have all the equipment we need to do what we need to do to glorify and honor God. And it's through Christ. He gives it to us openly, freely, not because we deserve it, but simply because God decided to give it to us. And he says, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. 
so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. What are the promises of God that we receive through Christ? Eternal life, right? We receive that through Christ. That's one of the promises we receive. Another promise we receive is the forgiveness of sins. Another promise we receive that God will always be with us. So there's so many promises that we've been given by God through this, and it's nothing that we've brought to the equation. We have literally done nothing but received it. And he says, great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. I love that. I love that terminology. Partakers of the divine nature. You share in God's nature. You share in who God is. You share in His attributes. You share in His characteristics. And then we see the antithesis of that in the latter part of this verse. He says, partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of our sinful nature. Our sinful desire. See, there's a difference between human nature and God's nature. Human nature is going to do what? Corrupt. It's going to be morally decayed. But because of what we've received through Christ and the promises that we've been given through Christ and the power that God has given us for life and godliness and all the things that we need to practice those things and to be sustained in those things, we have that through God's nature and being partakers of His nature. And the difference is that we are no longer bound to our sinful natures. Yes, we still have our sinful natures when we come into salvation. But we have been made a new creation. And that's what this is alluding to. We have been created anew from our sinful nature. And thus, because of the promises we have in God through Christ, we can escape the moral decay. We can escape the wage of sin. Right? That's what we have in being a partaker of the divine nature. And now, because in these last three verses, two verses, Peter has told us what God has done for us and what He has given us and what He has supplied us with, now we get our responsibility. So listen to this. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Now, here's the thing that we have to be careful in identifying Peter tells us to make every effort to add to our faith. Well, that doesn't mean that Christ is not enough because He certainly is. He is indeed enough and He is all we need for salvation. But for us, 
for us to do as we're going to see in verse 10 to confirm our election and to confirm our call to be God's children through Christ, this is the responsibilities we have. And the first one he uses, virtue. Most translations probably has that as moral excellence. So Peter, in these two verses, three verses, shows us that our salvation is not a one-time say a prayer and you're done. You have no other responsibilities. By no means does Peter say that. He says that once you have this foundation on Christ and in Christ, you build on that. And you build on that with first virtue, moral excellence. Well, as we stated earlier, who is our moral pattern? Who is our moral standard? Christ, right? We obey His Word, we trust in His Word, and we live in accordance to His Word. That is our moral standard. That is why we continuously fight against our sinful nature and our sinful lusts and desires, and we strive to be excellent morally. We strive to do what's right. Not what's necessarily legal, but what's right. Because there is some different there are some differences between humans' law and God's, right? We strive to do what's right. We add that striving of moral excellence on top of our faith. And then he says, on top of that moral excellence that you're striving for, I want you to add knowledge. Well, there's that word again. Must be pretty important because Peter has mentioned some type of knowledge five times. And he uses it right here, but this time this knowledge is different. This knowledge is not the epinosis because Peter's already established that you have the epinosis. Now you add the gnosis. In Colossians, if you want to flip over there in chapter 2, read this verse, verses for you real quick. Let's see. Let's go to, I'm just going to start in verse 1, chapter 2. It says, For I know you, or I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those in Laodicea, for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge, epinosis, of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, gnosis. We cannot get a proper knowledge, or should I say, wisdom, or knowing who God is and about God if we don't have the intimate knowledge of who God is. The world can tell us, well, Jesus was a good person, and Jesus did a lot of good things on earth. The world may even identify Jesus as the Son of God. But the world does not understand that Jesus himself is indeed God. And that is an educational knowledge. But we must first have the intimate knowledge knowing that our salvation comes through Christ and Christ alone. And he is the only one who has authority and power to deliver us from hell. And we build on that knowledge 
And then we receive general knowledge of who he is by doing what? Studying his word. We receive that knowledge by doing our due diligence and studying his word and listening to his word being preached and taught. That is the general knowledge that Peter's talking about here. You do not get the general knowledge right if you don't have the personal knowledge right. And then on top of that knowledge, he says, with self-control. Out of all these qualities that Peter tells us to practice, self-control is the only one we find in the book of Galatians that is a fruit of the Spirit. And I kiddingly think about that because it's like it's impossible for us to practice self-control unless we have the Holy Spirit to help us practice self-control. Correct? If you've ever seen me at a buffet, you'll know that it's a great struggle for me to practice self-control. My wife can identify it even though she just stepped up. But my parents can identify that. But nonetheless, self-control literally means in this instance to hold oneself in. To deny oneself. Well, who tells us about denying ourselves? Christ, right? You deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. You die to yourself. That's what self-control is. So Peter says, we add the moral excellence. We build on this foundation of what we have in Christ. We add the moral excellence, the virtue. Then we add the knowledge, the practical wisdom and understanding of who God is and what he desires from us. And then on top of that, we add resisting ourselves, denying ourselves, controlling ourselves, not letting our lusts, our desires, our circumstances, our situations to be our master. And then in self-control, he says, with steadfastness. Steadfastness, this word means to patiently endure. Because if you've read 1 Peter, you know that Peter wrote that letter to believers who were enduring persecution and sufferings and trials. And in that letter, he talks about steadfastness. And we see steadfastness mentioned in the book of James as well. Patiently enduring. Not allowing the situations or the circumstances to overcome us. We endure them. Because we know as believers, everything in this life is what? Temperate. It's fleeting. It's going to pass. But we do know also that it's who who stands forever and what stands forever. It's God who stands forever and it's His Word that stands forever. So, we've got knowledge with self-control and with self-control, patiently enduring. And steadfastness with godliness. This word godliness, it's closely associated with worship. But it really, literally means the piety or the reverence to God. So we add all these things to the equation. It says self-control, 
with patiently enduring. And then with that patiently enduring, you add your reverence and worship to God. We're building. And he says, and godliness with brotherly affection. We know that the word for brotherly affection in the Greek is Philadelphia, right? And of course, if you've ever been to Philadelphia, you'll absolutely know that that city indeed is not the city of brotherly love. It's the exact opposite. But in this one, we are to practice loving our brothers and sisters. And then he gives us the Philadelphia. And then right after Philadelphia, he uses the word agape, which is the love of God, right? God's love for man and man's love for God. So this is our responsibility. We've been bought and paid for by Christ. We've been given all the tools we need to live a life that is pleasing unto Him and to do things to obey Him and to trust in Him and to not only obey, but to also live lives that share His Word, that teach others about Him and who He is. And then he says in verse 8, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He goes back to that knowledge, but this is epinosis. This prevents you from being unfruitful or growing in your relationship with God and your relationship with Christ. This is our responsibility as believers. Paul has prescribed, excuse me, Peter has prescribed it for us. And we can sum that up really in two words if you want to dumb it down a little bit. Obedience. Submission. We submit to God. We view ourselves as Peter and Paul and all the writers as slaves to God. We identify ourselves as not being our own, but rather being owned by God. If we get that construct right in our relationship with God, then we'll understand how we're supposed to live. And Peter spells out these qualities for us. And he says, practicing these qualities will help us not to become idle. That's what that ineffectiveness means. Or unfruitful, barren. It prevents us from not staggering in our walk with God. It prevents us from not following in, falling into disobedience. And it also prevents us from doubting. It prevents us from not being sure about who we are and whose we are. Thus, that is why we see, let's see, we'll go to verse 9. He says, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. And then verse 10, this is the target of this passage. And this is the target for us that I want us to understand as believers. Therefore, brothers, 
Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and your election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. That is our responsibility, to practice these qualities. And we do that to confirm who we are. We do that to confirm that we have indeed been chosen by God to receive salvation. But he says, if you forget this and you don't practice these qualities, you're nearsighted. You're blind. I don't know if any of you are nearsighted, but I'm nearsighted. And if I take my contacts out or don't have my glasses on, I couldn't make heads or tails of who you are from here. So I understand that analogy. I wouldn't know where to go or what to do if I didn't have my glasses or contacts on. I would be directionless. I would be unsure. I wouldn't be assured. I'd be nervous. I'd be doubting. But these qualities for us to obey, for us to submit to, These help us confirm who we are and confirm our calling to this salvation that God has chosen, has elected to give to us. And the great thing about it is, is if you are truly born again of God, rest assured in knowing that God knows that you are His. There will be no one who sneaks into heaven and God's going to be like, how did you get in here? No, no, no. He chose to dispense His grace through His Son, Jesus Christ, to those whom He has called, to those whom He has chosen. That is the election of God. We Americans love to have our choices, but we always try to dumb down the fact that God has His choices too. For us to find assurance in that, We must practice the things that God has told us to practice. We must obey His Word, submit to His truth. And Peter says, if you do that, you'll never fall. And that doesn't mean that we won't ever sin again, because of course we're going to sin. But when you get entangled with sin, and you don't obey the truth and the Word as you should, one of the first things that happens is you become unsure, right? You don't become so sure of your salvation. You doubt it. You question it. And then, go back to the knowledge part of it. If you're not supplementing your faith with the knowledge of who God is through His Word, you're supplementing it with something else. Probably the world. So then you become even more unsure. Well, maybe that isn't what God meant Because the world's telling me this. And then next thing you know, you get swept and swept into whatever sounds the best. And you become like Paul writes, being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine that may come to pass. That's the dangers of us not doing what we are being called to do. We are susceptible 
to fall for false teaching and false doctrine. And as you read in 2 Peter, you'll understand that that's really the theme of this book, is to combat false teaching and false, false doctrine. And if you read the New Testament, you'll read most every book in the New Testament. A large portion of it is to combat false teaching and false doctrine. So, not only does this enable us to confirm our calling in Christ and our election with God through Christ, but it also enables us to establish and know the difference between what's right and what's wrong. To know the difference between solid biblical doctrine and doctrine that's been fed to us by the devil. So in closing, I hope that as Peter writes in these last three verses, this is the same thing I want for us. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Never cease to be obedient to these qualities. That you know them and are established in the truth that you have, that you think it right, and as long as Peter says he was in this body, I want to stir you up by way of reminder. Let us always be stirred up by way of this reminder as to what our responsibilities are as believers. And so that we can be sure in our salvation, that we can be sure in our calling and knowing that God has chosen us to be His. Not on the basis of anything that we do or that we achieve or attain, but on the basis of Christ on the basis of His righteousness. And we stand in equal standing of the faith because of Christ's righteousness, not because of ours. Let's pray.